1 John chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us, that we should be called the children of God. Therefore the world does not know us, because it did not know Him. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when He is revealed, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who has this hope in Him purifies himself, just as He is pure. There's a famous drawing by English engraver Henry Moses done in 1820. It depicts a whimsical game played in France, usually by young lovers. Moses' drawing is entitled, The Decision of the Flower. In fact, you may have played this game yourself. The participants are people who have fallen in love and are pondering if the one they love loves them in return. She picks the petals off the flower. In alternating with each petal, she says, He loves me. He loves me not. He loves me. He loves me not. He loves me. He loves me not. Hopefully her flower doesn't have a lot of petals. (laughs) For on and on this goes until whatever is said over the last petal becomes the answer to her curiosity. Well, in this morning's text, the Apostle John is playing a similar game. But he's not just mulling over a curiosity. He is explaining a definite reality. When John thinks of God, he realizes he loves me. But when he turns his attention to this world, he shudders. It loves me not. God loves me. This world loves me not. And this is the plight of every Christian. We are loved by God more than we can imagine. But at the very same time, we are misunderstood by this world. And as a result, it doesn't appreciate us. In fact, at times, the world despises us. Again, this is the dilemma of every follower of Jesus. Jesus loves me more than I know, but this world loves me not. And this creates far-reaching dynamics. In our text, the Apostle John, he takes us on a tour. He starts with what we are now followed by what has not yet been revealed, then on to what we shall be, and back to he who has this hope. Here's our journey. From now to not yet to we shall to who has. Here's another way of saying it. In these three amazing verses, John discusses our given glory, our hidden glory, our coming glory, and our growing glory. Our given glory, hidden glory, coming glory, growing glory. Well, the Apostle John begins chapter 3 with one of the most staggering thoughts in all of the Bible. If you're down in the dumps this morning and need a lift, if you're looking for some pep in your step, some hay in your day, a little bump to your jump, verse 1 is for you. It's an invitation. John seizes us. He grabs our attention. He calls us out. Behold, stop what you're doing. Arrest your wandering thoughts. I have a point you should ponder. Behold, what manner of love 
the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called children of God. Oh, John is saying, check this out, would you? God loves us so much, he has made a way for us to be called his kids. And this is what we'll do. We'll just behold a bit. Behold what manner of love. The Greek word, potopos, is here translated manner. It means from what country. It speaks of a behavior, a trait, indicative of a particular country. Perhaps you've heard the joke. Heaven is where the police are British, the chefs are Italian, the mechanics are German, the lovers are French, and it's all organized by the Swiss. Okay? Well, hell is where the police are German, the chefs are British, the mechanics are French, the lovers are Swiss, and it's all organized by the Italians. <laughs> Think of all the different countries in this world, and they're all known for their own particular proclivities. And the same is true of heaven. The God in heaven is known for a specific manner or type of love that cannot be experienced anywhere else in the universe. Of course, our world is not without its types of love. There's the strong love of a father, the tender love of a mother, the longing love of children for their parents, the lasting love of siblings, the loyal love of friends, the passionate love of spouses. These, there are all kinds of love in the world, and aren't we glad of that? As the old saying goes, it's love that makes the world go round. But there is a greater form of love than what can be found in earthly relationships. There is a love that's out of this world. In Ephesians 3 verse 18, Paul prays that his readers can comprehend what is the width and length and depth and height to know the love of Christ. Notice Paul mentions the width of God's love. God's love reaches everywhere and to everyone. It crosses borders and boundaries. It breaks down walls and barriers. It grows in sidewalk cracks. It pops up in the most unexpected places. He speaks of the length of God's love. When you're a distant memory to the people closest to you, you'll still be the object of God's love. You'll still be the apple of his eye. There is no length to God's love. The depth of God's love. God's love is weighted so that it always sinks to the bottom. That no matter how low you go, you are never out of the reach of God's love. And then he exalts in the height of God's love. A love that sacrifices his only son for the likes of us is a love that's over our heads. God's love rises to peaks that none of us can climb. It tops all of our earthly concepts of love. Think of the manner of love it took for the eternal, holy, impeccable God to make children out of sinful, rebellious, onerous us. God took rebellious, dirty little street urchins like me and you. Spiritually speaking, we were dumpster divers. We were. Look at where you've been. Think of the scraps you've sucked, the scum you swam in, the depths to which you've sunk, the shameful stuff you've done. 
Yet the God in heaven made a way for us to become children of the king. Now we're kids of the king of kings. Behold the mind-blowing love of God that he has for us. Of course, what fuels this thought and makes possible this notion of us becoming God's sons and daughters is the work of God's unique son, our Lord Jesus. Jesus lived a sinless life so that he could die in our place. He could take our sin on his innocent shoulders. He eagerly paid the penalty for our sin. And now when we come to Jesus, we can walk away free and forgiven. And even more, God is now our Father. This is amazing love. Jesus created for us the same sort of relationship with God that he has. Thus, the Son of God ushered into God's family many sons and daughters. Realize there are three ways that you can enter into a family. First is to be born into that family. It's kind of tough doing it. You enter through the rigors of birth. A seed gets planted and it grows. A womb contracts. There's pressure. There's pushing. A baby comes through blood and water. It's all similar, really, to what a person goes through when they're born again. Often God applies agonizing pressure to bring us to a place of repentance and faith. It's called the life principle. But the second way to enter a family is to be adopted. Paperwork gets filed. Laws and courts are as definitive as blood and water. An adopted child has the same rights as a child by birth. And this is the hope of us who are Gentile Christians. For God's promise of salvation is to the Jews. Thus, those of us who lack Jewish blood can be thankful that God has put in place laws for us to be adopted in Christ Jesus. We enter his family by the legal principle. And then there's a third way for us to enter a family, and that's by marriage. A man and a woman, they form a union. They make a holy and a permanent commitment to one another. And this too has happened to true believers. Jesus has taken a bride. The New Testament calls us the bride of Christ. Thus we too have entered God's family a third way, through the love principle. Behold God's love. He wants us to be his to such an extent that he's made us part of his family in three ways. Through life, through law, and through love. This makes God, our Father, in every sense of the word. And this is the name for God unique to Christianity. The Jews referred to the Holy Eternal One as El or Elohim, which spoke of his greatness. Or they would speak of God as Yahweh, the great promise keeper. But the Hebrews never referred to God as Abba or Father, not in any kind of personal sense. Oh, at times he was called the father of the nation, but no individual addressed the almighty God as father until Jesus. This is what blew John's mind. He and the other disciples, they overheard Jesus praying and addressing the awesome God as Abba, literally Papa or Daddy. He used a term of the closest possible endearment. But as if that wasn't staggering enough, when Jesus taught his disciples to pray, remember what he told them. He said, you should address God the same way that I do. When you pray, 
say, Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. His intention was to place those disciples on the same terms with God that he had enjoyed. And this is true of all Christians since. The fellowship we now have with Jesus have made this sovereign God who sits on the orb of the universe our Father. I know some of you had a not-so-good father growing up, more a dud than a dad. And now when you hear the word father, it doesn't excite you as much as it should. Don't let that earthly man rob you again by distorting a relationship with such immense potential for good in your life. Imagine, God is your dad. Let him reshape your image and feelings about fathers in general. Famous theologian J.I. Packer once said, If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. And please understand, this relationship with God as your father isn't something you have to earn or grow into or prove yourself before it goes into full effect. Take note of what John says in verse 2. Beloved, now we are children of God. Right now, the moment you're saved. This is a given glory. It is bestowed fully and freely. It's not bought by good works or sought by man's will or wrought by our own devices. It's free. It's a gift of God's grace. So, who's your daddy? And here's my answer. Behold what manner of love, that God is my daddy. And if I don't rush God's throne for everything I need, And if I'm not proud of him who sits at the head of my table, and if I don't walk in this world with a bit of a strut knowing that its creator is my father, then as old J.I. Packer unpacked, I don't grasp Christianity very well at all. Once there was an older gentleman came to the track meet in his suit. It's an unusual sight at the Special Olympics. He had rushed over from the office to watch his son compete in the 400-meter dash. Well, when he shouted, go Lenny, a middle-aged man in running shorts with Down syndrome looked up into the stands from the track. Soon the gun sounded. All the runners sped away except Lenny. He was dead last and losing ground. He was preoccupied with his hands. The whole time he was running, he was wringing his hands. But the man in the stands got the attention of the whole section. He was so proud. That's my son, Lenny. Isn't he doing great? When Lenny reached the last turn, the other runners had already crossed the finish line. But this fan in the stands, he kept yelling, Great job, Lenny. Way to go, son. The spectators around him, they applauded politely, but actually they were a bit embarrassed for both Lenny and his dad. Finally, Lenny crossed the finish line, and he was met by his father. The dad proudly hugged his exhausted, confused, drooling runner. He was still so proud of his son. And we are all like Lenny, crippled in so many ways. 
We're challenged by our own disabilities. We're often perplexed and exhausted. Most days we're nothing but a pitiful pile of exhaustion and sweat and drool. Yet we have a Father who loves us and is proud to call us His kids despite our deficiencies. Behold, friends, behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called children of God. He loves me. But this world loves me not. For John continues, Therefore the world does not know us because it did not know him. I like this paraphrase of verse 1. What marvelous love the Father has extended to us. Just look at it. We're called children of God. That's who we really are. But that's also why the world doesn't recognize us or take us seriously because it has no idea who he is or what he's up to. Jesus was God in the flesh. He knew the mysteries of creation. He understood each person he came in contact with better than they knew themselves. Yet Jesus himself was brushed aside by the masses as a mere teacher. He was accused by the religious establishment of being a charlatan. He was ultimately executed as a blasphemer. Obviously, Jesus was never recognized or appreciated for who he really was. And this is the Christian's dilemma. In Christ, we are co-heirs with Jesus. We are kids of the King. We are beneficiaries of divine grace and mercy. We are members of God's forever family. Yet often, we're either brushed aside or ignored by this world. Sometimes we're scoffed at and persecuted We too are not recognized and appreciated for who we really are. Movie star Helen Hunt, she's a successful leading lady, actually a director as well. In 1997, she won the Oscar for Best Actress. She's won four Emmy Awards, four Golden Globes. Yet she's often not recognized. Recently, she told the story of how she was mistaken for fellow actress Jodie Foster at her neighborhood Starbucks. When Helen went to pick up her coffee, she'd ordered, Jody's name was written on the side of the cup. Later, Helen Hunt tweeted, ordered my drink at Starbucks, asked the barista if she wanted my name. She winked and said, we gotcha, hashtag Jody Foster. And like the barista who didn't recognize the famous movie star, this world doesn't recognize us. Your heart is the site of a miracle. The Holy Spirit has revived you. He now lives inside you. Your heart is a sacred place. It should be a tourist attraction. Yet instead of treating you as special, the folks at work, they often ignore you. Certainly ignore your faith. Sometimes they view you falsely. Hey, don't be shocked if they treat you even the way they treated Jesus. And even worse, don't let the way they treat you affect how you see yourself. For this happens far too often. We as Christians allow the world to press us into its mold. Rather than live out what God has put in, we cower away. We need to remember who we are in Christ. In Colossians chapter 3, verse 3, Paul writes to the believers. He said, for you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. You and I need to realize that the Christian life is the hidden life. 
Our given glory is for now a hidden glory. The world looks at the Christian and doesn't really get our devotion. They don't understand. They scoff. Oh, she's committed herself completely to Christ, and now she has nothing to show for it. And to a degree, the world might be right. Our God is invisible. Our home is over the horizon, out of sight, off the map. Our greatest rewards are still future. Our Savior is seen only through eyes of faith. And our Helper, the Holy Spirit, is like the wind. He's spiritual rather than tangible. He's sensed rather than seen. Our treasure is buried in our hearts. Our source of love and power and joy and peace is accessed only from the inside of our lives, not from the outside. In short, our life is hidden with Christ in God. Recall how John defined the world system back in chapter 2, verse 16. He listed the values that the world promotes that God opposes. The lust of the flesh, living for what feels good. The lust of the eyes, trying to look good. The pride of life, wanting to be great. This means as Christians, our life's emphasis should be the opposite of that of the world. We should focus on the spiritual, not the physical. The internal, not the external. The eternal, not the temporal. From an insider's perspective, a person who knows Christ and the abundance he brings sees this as a rich, full life. But this is not how it's viewed from the outsider's perspective. The world sees the Christian life as a repressed existence devoid of what counts. One day, the Pharisees, they approached Jesus. Oh, you talk so much about the kingdom of God. Where is this kingdom, they asked. They were thinking of pageantry and wealth and power, what you'd find in an earthly kingdom. But Jesus replied, the kingdom does not come with observation. It's not outward. It's not tangible or visible or earthly. Nor will they say, see here or see there. You can't point it out. Jesus says, for the kingdom, for indeed the kingdom of God is within you. The glory of our lives is hidden with Christ in God. We're like an iceberg. The largest part of who we are and what we have is out of sight, below the surface. All the world sees is just the tip of the iceberg. This is why we're laughed at and ridiculed and misconstrued so many times. A Christian has given their all to a kingdom and king other people cannot see. It is indeed a hidden glory. Yet one day soon, our plight is going to change. For there is also a coming glory. Verse 2 tells us, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when He is revealed, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. One day, God is going to let the cat out of the bag. What we are, the glorious children of God, will be revealed to everyone. Everyone will be in awe of us. When Jesus appears in the clouds, we'll be on cloud nine. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we're told that one day soon, Jesus will return for his church. He'll snatch us up to be with him in the air. We'll live forever with Jesus. At the rapture of the church, we'll be given new bodies that radiate God's eternal glory. 
Colossians 3 verse 4 tells us, When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. The redemption that God has planned for us in Christ won't be complete until every vestige of sin and death and decay has been purged from our fleshly bodies. Our rotting flesh will be transformed. God will give us new bodies that will reflect God's beauty and His glory. These current bodies are too opaque. What you see is not always what you get. The life of Christ abides in us, but that's not always apparent to those who look at us. Our eternal bodies will be more translucent. The glory on the inside will be seen by folks on the outside. Like Jesus at his transfiguration. You remember John was there. The glory that was hidden will suddenly shine through the flesh that once housed it. This is the destiny that awaits you and me. Of course, when it comes to our coming glory, John seems to have more questions than he does answers. For he writes, it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. There's some holes in our understanding. Some of the details surrounding our future remain murky. But one truth is certain. A change is coming. In fact, a change is mandatory. Listen to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 50. It says, Now this I say, brethren, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. Notice our current bodies aren't fit for our future environment. You can't take a body fit for earth and it survive in heaven. A change has to take place. And so he says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. The bodies of the believing dead are resurrected first. Some people ask why. It's because they got six feet further to go. They're followed by the bodies of believers who are alive at the time. And John conclu- I mean, Paul concludes... For this corruptible must put on incorruption. And this mortal must put on immortality. When man walked on the moon, NASA knew a human body could never survive on the lunar surface. Earthly bodies aren't fit for lunar life. That's why NASA designed a life support suit for the moonwalks. And likewise, these mortal bodies that we currently inhabit aren't suitable to survive the physical presence of God in heaven. If we entered pure, unbridled holiness, wearing flesh and blood, we'd melt faster than an ice cream on a hot July day. To enter God's throne room, we'll have to shed our earth suits and suit up in a spiritual body. In his book, The Great Divorce, theologian C.S. Lewis He imagined what these heavenly bodies might look like. He writes, I saw people coming to meet us. Because they were bright, I saw them while they were still very distant. And at first I did not know that they were people at all. The earth shook under their tread as their strong feet sank into the wet turf. Some were naked, some robed. But the naked ones did not seem less adorned. And the robes did not disguise in those who wore them the massive grandeur of muscle and the radiant smoothness of flesh. Some were bearded, 
but no one struck me as being of any particular age. Sum it up, they were shining, strong, unblemished, smooth-skinned, ageless. A heavenly man is a sight to behold. Lewis says in another place, a regenerate man in glory would be something we in our ignorance might be tempted to worship. If through these eyes we saw a believer in his or her glorified body, we might mistake the human for divine. Heavenly bodies are going to be heavenly. Today we wonder about our future heavenly bodies. What characteristics will they possess? How will they behave under pressure? Imagine a body no longer vulnerable to pain and sickness and soreness. Think of inhabiting a body that never breaks down. We can try to envision these capabilities, but John squelches our curiosity with five words. We shall be like him. We'll have the same type of body with the same features that Jesus had after his resurrection. You recall how Jesus vanished before the disciples on the road to Emmaus. Then he reappeared in the upper room in Jerusalem just a few minutes later, several miles away, instantly transported. His body wasn't limited by time or by space, and neither will ours be. I'm sure what all Christ-like includes is beyond me, but I'm also sure that we'll be the envy of the angels. We'll be beautiful beyond description like Jesus. People may be mocking us for the moment, but one day the follower of Jesus is going to get the last laugh. When Jesus appears visibly and tangibly, the whole world will stand in awe. With jaws dropped and tongues tied, they'll stand in fear of his majesty. And there, your life and what the world thought was a strange devotion you had will be instantly explained when the ladies on The View get a view of you, standing right there next to Jesus, clothed in all his glory, suddenly they'll understand Christianity in a new light. In that moment, the hidden life will become the envied life. A mechanic and a sculptor were competing to create an ornament that would adorn the top of a skyscraper. Well, the sculptor's work was chosen. It was an exquisite piece. It was small, but it was full of meticulous detail. The day came for the art to be hoisted to the top of the building. But as it ascended, it began to lose its definition. It began to look like nothing but a shapeless block. Well, in desperation, the owners, they brought it down and they tried the mechanics piece. Of course, it seemed uncouth and huge. But as it was hoisted into the air, they noticed the further it rose, the more its deformities disappeared and the more elegant it looked. And you see, this is the plight of the Christian. On earth, we seem so marred and mortal. We look like little more than that roughed out chunk of stone. But when we ascend to heaven to join our Lord, we'll become like him and we'll take on a breathtaking beauty. For every believer, there is a given glory, a hidden glory, a coming glory, and finally, a growing glory. Believe what we are now, children of God. Of course, that has not yet been revealed. But when we see him, we shall be like him. And then John tells us, verse 3, everyone who has this hope in him 
purifies himself just as he is pure. Hope is our confidence in the future. And here's the big question for you and me. How, many, how often do we even focus on the future? Harvest psychologist Daniel Gilbert writes this, Human beings think about the future in a way that no other animal can, does, or ever has. And this simple, ordinary act is the defining feature of our humanity. This is what sets humans apart, that we can focus on the future. Gilbert says that the average adult spends 12% of their day thinking about the future. That means that 7 minutes and 12 seconds out of every hour, you are focused forward. You are somehow thinking about your future. John says this is good. For when we think about our ultimate and our eternal destiny, it motivates us to live a godly and holy life in the present. I like what the poet writes. Could you envision, see yourself, the man God meant? You never more would be the man you are content. You see, a focus, a forward focus is the key to a purer present. Today, skeptics label the doctrine of the rapture as a form of escapism. Rather than trying to make the here and now a better place, they accuse rapture advocates of sitting on their hands and twiddling their thumbs and biding their time and waiting complacently. Not so. Our hope of seeing Jesus is a powerful motivator for godly living. Verse 3, everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. Think of that young lady who lands a date to the prom with the high school heartthrob. Trust me, she won't be idle 30 minutes before he arrives to pick her up. She's prepping and primping. She's styling and smiling. This girl wants to look her very best when he appears. And likewise, we, the bride of Christ, should want to be at our best when Jesus returns for us. A constant expectation of his soon arrival keeps us on our toes. Wherever I go, whatever I do, I want to first ask myself, if Jesus returned right now, is this where I'd want him to find me? For sure, we'll want to be pure. According to the Collins English Dictionary, the word of the year for 2017 was binge watch. It's defined as watching a large number of television programs in succession. Its usage has tripled over this past year. Apparently people are binge watching. I think we'd all agree that keeping our eyes fixed on an HD TV screen for long, uninterrupted intervals is probably not the best use of our time. But let me ask you, what if we binge watched for Jesus? What if we kept our eyes on the heavens constantly with the expectation that he could return at any moment? Now we're talking. For it's this kind of gaze that keeps me hoping for him, keeps me holy toward him. Don't ever forget, we shall see him as he is. So let me ask you, are you living between two worlds? Are you picking flower petals, so to speak? Oh, you know God loves me. And this world loves me not. But for some reason, you're still picking. You're still playing the game. You live your life in limbo, never quite sure where you're going to come down this next weekend. 
Will you resist the lures of this world and live for Jesus? Or will you pick the next petal, hoping that things have changed, hoping that the world loves you after all? He loves me. The world loves me not. I hope you really come to believe those both, tru- both of those truths in the days ahead.